the glory of the one and only Son, truth. Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was written through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who himself is God and in his closest relationship with the Father has made him known. The word of the Lord. In this series, I'm introducing you to some of your superpowers because as a follower of Jesus, you are capable of heroic exploits. So in the past two weeks, we learned about the importance of patience and suffering and how God uses that. And we said that waiting and weakness are actually two of our superpowers. This morning, we're going to focus on another dynamic weapon in your arsenal, but first, I want to tell you a true story, a Christmas story, unlike any that you may have ever heard before. This one does not mention reindeer or snowmen. It has nothing to do with Santa. There's no shepherds or wise men. There's no innkeeper and no essential oils like frankincense and myrrh. Because this account of Advent comes from a most unlikely place from the book of Revelation, chapter 12. So as we get ready, let's pray. Father, thank you for the many different perspectives we have on Christmas, the many different angles that we can look at it from. And uh, help us to see some fresh things today, even as we look into your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. According to our Christmas carols, the weather forecast for Bethlehem was for a silent night. All was calm, all was bright. But Revelation 12 shows us that behind the scenes, the universe was in convulsions. In the spiritual realm, it was a Star Wars. Angels and demons were engaged in bitter combat on a cosmic scale. And so I advise you to buckle your seat belts, put your hymn books in the upright position, because we're going to experience some turbulence. While Mary and Joseph were traveling towards Bethlehem, this is what was happening in the rest of the cosmos. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. 
Now this is not Mary of Nazareth. In the symbolism of Revelation, women often represented civilizations like Babylon. The identity of this woman is disclosed by the tiara that she's wearing, a crown of 12 stars. You may remember in the book of Genesis, Joseph had a prophetic dream in which he saw his brothers depicted as stars. So on this crown, there are 12 stars representing 12 brothers who eventually became 12 tribes. This woman represents the nation of Israel where a most important birth was about to take place. Heaven was coming down to earth, which meant that all hell would break loose because this birth would not happen uncontested. Verse 3, then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. Now I'm going to make an educated guess and say that this red dragon is the devil, not a Chinese restaurant. An enormous red dragon and there's seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. Pretty obvious. You know, for most of the time, Satan likes to keep a low profile. The enemy's number two goal is to convince people that God does not exist. Imagine there's no heaven. Their number one goal is to assure us that Satan does not exist. No hell below us. There's no evil. It's just, you know, goodness deficit disorder. Have a nice day. Lucifer is not a show-off because he can do the most damage when people assume that he's a myth like Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. He likes to operate in secret because that's where he can inflict the most damage. It's kind of like cancer. The most dangerous cancer is the one that's undetected until it's too late. Well, that's Satan's endgame. He remains inconspicuous because it gives him tremendous tactical advantage. But there are times when he's forced out into the open, like when there's an invasion of his kingdom. The devil is very territorial. And as 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 reminds us, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And the roaring lion has sent, marked his territory with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And oh my, there is pride. That's the specialty of the house. So an invasion from heaven would be a red alert this was not a drill. All demons on deck. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. The heads symbolize his unparalleled intellect. He is so brilliant that he can outsmart our most respected scientists and turn them into fools who believe that evolution makes the creator God unnecessary. The horns symbolize great power, destructive power, samples of which have been displayed in everything from the Roman Empire to the Third Reich. 
The crowns represent the majestic magnitude of his authority, which was displayed in Matthew chapter 4 in history's first ever Everest expedition. In Matthew 4 verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. All this is yours? Wow, that's impressive. A red, enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. Truly an impressive sight, one that would inspire fear and trembling. You know, even with his infinity stones, Thanos is a mere single-headed salamander compared to this magnificent red dragon. And his resume fills us with shock and awe. Verse 4 says, His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. You see, Lucifer succeeded in putting a huge dent in God's approval rating when he led a rebellion against the throne of heaven by recruiting a third of the angels who rallied to his cause to oppose God. They were so impressed with this charming, charismatic angel of light that they followed him. They were willing to reject the establishment and enter his bold adventure and follow him right into the abyss. Now, although the revolution failed miserably, the fighting rages on elsewhere. Verse 4 says, The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. And so down on earth, no one realized what was going on behind the scenes. Joseph didn't sense a predator stalking them on their journey to Bethlehem. The innkeeper didn't say, well, you can stay in the stable, just watch out for the red dragon who may be lurking nearby. He stood in front of the woman that he might devour the child the moment it was born. And of course, King Herod was the local asset who got the contract to terminate this invasion. But his hit squad missed and the child escaped. Verse 5 says, She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. We don't have any, you know, the time to really go into the all the prophetic detail of this. We're just going to hit some highlights. We know that tragically there was considerable collateral damage even though the child escaped. Verse 7 says, And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. That's like the infinity war in the Marvel Universe, except this one was real. So the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. 
And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. That is good news. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And he succeeded in doing that. Rejoice. But here's the bad news. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Satan has been defeated in the heavenlies, and boy is he mad. So now he's going to take it out on the earth, on mere mortals like us. And I have a bad feeling about this. We have no chance against a seven-headed, fire-breathing red dragon. Or do we? Look at back at verse 11. It says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Wow! Who would have thought that there's a way for civilians like us to beat the great dragon? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That is so ironic. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, because the blood of the Lamb that was slain temporarily at first symbolized Satan's greatest victory, the crucifixion. But his celebration was sabotaged by the triumph of the resurrection. And so now the blood of the lamb reminds the dragon of his greatest defeat. And that becomes our testimony. And we will proclaim that victory, the victory of Christ, even if it costs us our lives. Because it says in verse 11, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. You see, if we are willing to die for what we believe about Jesus, then the enemy has no leverage against us. It's checkmate. And even in his attempts to harass us, we will overcome because we have a, a weapon of mass defiance. So let me introduce you to one, another one of your superpowers, which we find in James chapter 4. Verse 4 of, of that chapter says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, the angels chose sides in the cosmic conflict. While the majority stayed loyal to God, a third of them decided to join Lucifer, and that choice is locked in. Well, as humans, we also have to choose sides. Neutrality is not an option. 
And it all comes down to the two same alternatives. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That is the choice before us. And that choice is mutually exclusive. I mean, it's like you can't cheer for the flames and the oilers. Can you, can you do that? You have to pick one, don't you? I mean, you can't be double-minded. you got to pick your team. If you're a real fan, then you're single-minded. And that's the one you've chosen. Our devotion has to be decisive. We make... Well, the things that the choices that we make in life will determine our, who our friends are and who our enemies are. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, this is not necessarily an easy choice because the world has a lot to offer, so much to offer. Many are attracted to its promise of pleasure and power, and popularity, and prosperity. It's very addictive. Hey, look at that. The world friended me. There's a lot to be said for the world, but there are consequences because if we become a friend of the world, we automatically become an enemy of God. And by the same token, if we become a friend of God... We become an enemy of the world. That's what Jesus was talking about in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. In the world, being different is the unpardonable sin. It's not a good career move to be a friend of God. So there's even a number of believers who become friends of the world. They are double-minded. But that is high treason. It's spiritual adultery. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Verse 5 says, Or do you... Do you think that scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us tends towards envy? It can also be translated jealousy. We know that in marriage, adultery is the ultimate sin. When a husband cheats, the wife doesn't just keep calm and chive on. She gets really upset because righteous jealousy is the appropriate response to such an act of treason. Well, on a far greater scale... God is also deeply grieved by our disloyalty when we start flirting with the world. But he's always eager to forgive and to reconcile. Verse 6 says, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, friendship with the world is all about pride. The world encourages us to find ourselves and to fulfill ourselves and to indulge ourselves. It's all about pride. In fact, we even have parades that promote pride. But the Bible says God opposes the proud. Friendship with the world emphasizes pride. 
because it's under Satan's control and pride is his natural habitat. Which brings us to the other option. If friendship with the world does not appeal to us, if we would rather pursue friendship with God, then we have to move away from pride and towards humility. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Instead of asserting our self-sufficiency and demanding our rights, we have to deny ourselves. Rather than wanting to be served, we have to be willing to serve others to sacrifice. Rather than putting ourselves ahead of others, we put them ahead of ourselves. Rather than getting revenge, we humble ourselves and forgive one another. Humility is like Peter in the boat saying, Lord, you want me to put out into deep water, but that doesn't make any sense. It'll never work. I, I don't feel like it. But, because you say so, I will. That's humility. Every time we obey, especially when we don't want to, we are humbling ourselves. God gives grace to the humble. It's so powerful. It's John the Baptist who said, he must increase, which means I must decrease. And so he humbled himself. Humility is very radical. But doesn't that make us weak and vulnerable? No, not at all. In fact, humility, by submission to God, becomes our superpower. And it's so effective that we can actually use it against the great dragon himself. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Wow. Humility is so powerful that it gives us the ability to overcome the devil. I mean, how many can do that? But because you've humbled yourself, because you've submitted to God, you now have the power to resist the devil himself. So what does that look like? Well, let me give you an example. Back in Revelation 12 and verse 10, the devil is called the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night. That's one of Satan's most effective and destructive tactics. He is the accuser. So to resist him means that we have to reject his accusations. That means we don't listen to his lies when he accuses us. When, God, when Satan accuses you and tries to deceive you by saying, nobody cares about you. You're never going to amount to very much. God will never forgive you for that. Can't you do anything right? When you hear that, you immediately reject it. You know that that's a lie. And you resist the devil. And he will flee from you. You recognize you're being scammed. So you defiantly resist. You shall not pass. You reject Satan's lies and reaffirm the truth of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
Resisting the devil means you don't listen to his lies when he accuses other people and says, they're just using you. Sooner or later, they're going to reject you. There's no point praying for them. They're never going to change. You might as well give up. They're a hopeless case. These are some of the things that Satan will say to us. He's trying to hack our faith. But if we resist, if we put up a firewall that he can't penetrate because it's based on truth, we don't listen to those lies. We resist, we reject them, we do not receive them. Resisting the devil means you don't let the sun go down on your anger. You don't do that. You don't harbor a grudge. Resisting means you don't spread gossip. Resisting means you don't think that you're better than people who are different than you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So submit yourselves then to God so that you can resist and make him run. That humble resistance has such a powerful effect that it actually turns the tide in the cosmic struggle and evil must retreat. You see, it only makes sense from a, even from a psychological standpoint because Satan's pride is not a superpower. It's actually a weakness and it's relatively easy to exploit. Satan is so proud of all these human weaklings he can manipulate and maneuver into ever-increasing unrighteousness. He's so proud of all those he controls. That makes his day. So when a mild-mannered, single-minded disciple of Christ like you comes along, and you don't conform, and you're not deceived, and you don't get discouraged, and you don't give in to fear, Satan can't handle that. It's like a severe allergic reaction. He just can't handle that. And above all, it is so embarrassing. He is absolutely humiliated. He has no choice but to run and hide. That's what happens when a bully meets his match. So when you defiantly resist the devil, he doesn't just walk away growling. No, he can't get out of there fast enough. He flees in fear because he knows he's been defeated again and he can't take that. We are never to run from Satan. We do not fear him. We do not run from him. We run from temptation, but we don't run from the tempter. He is the one who has to run from us. So submit yourselves then to God Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, of course, like the Terminator, he'll be back. But when he shows up next time, the outcome will not change. You'll keep resisting. He will keep running because you've ruined his whole day. And you'll do it again tomorrow. Now, of course, we realize that Satan is in no way intimidated by us personally. He's terrified by the one who is in us. 
1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. See, the roaring lion is not the Alpha. The lion of the tribe of Judah is the Alpha and the Omega. Satan is terrified of the one who is in you. And if Satan cannot break your loyalty to Jesus and your friendship with God, then he is decisively defeated. He is out of ammunition. So he has to run. Verse 8 says, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. That's an invitation, especially for those who've been kind of colluding with the enemy, fraternizing with the world. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Pride is a deeply flawed life strategy. It puts you on the wrong side of God. God opposes the proud. But humility is the antidote, which not only promotes robust spiritual health, but it's a genuine superpower. God gives grace to the humble. And that enables you to stand against that enormous red dragon with seven heads and seven crowns and ten horns. In humility, you can defiantly resist him. And you resist listening to his accusations and you force him to flee just like all those believers who have gone before us. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death because that simply is checkmate. Game over. Father, we thank you that the victory that you won through your death and resurrection, your son's death and resurrection, is applicable to our lives. That we can use that on a daily basis to get victory Whenever Satan comes and lies to us, whenever he tries to accuse us or accuse other people, that we can resist that, reject it, and instead embrace the truth of your word, the firewall that prevents Satan from hacking into our faith. Lord, help us to uh, be wise and discerning the thoughts that we have, those that come from the enemy and only listen to your voice, our Lord and Master. We are submitted to you in humility, and that is our superpower. May we use it on a daily basis to continue to celebrate the victory that was won for us through Jesus Christ, through his power in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.